Hey everybody, it is Wednesday. You know how we get down. We are doing the topic of air embolism on tonight as we prepare you for your state board nursing exams. Plus we have five challenging NCLEX questions. Hi there, my name is Regina Callion, the number one NCLEX instructor on the planet. And I'm so happy that you joined me on this Wednesday to make sure that you are winning by knowing the information that I'm gonna to present to you tonight. I've been teaching NCLEX information to nursing students for over 10 years, and every year it gets better and better and better. We got some exciting things coming up for you guys, but let's get into this topic tonight. Air embolism. Now, when we discuss air embolism, I do want you to know that this is considered a medical emergency because if you get an air embolism, then it's possible that you could have circulatory collapse. So just looking at the term air, of course, we are talking about um, air entering the vascular space and an embolism can be, um, it's, a, it's a clot, it could be fat, it could be blood, it could be a foreign object, but essentially it's going to block the vessels. So I'll read it to you, it says this, air embolism, is a rare but possibly fatal phenomenon that happens as a result of air entering the vasculature. And it can occur as venous or arterial. Check that out, venous or arterial. Venous air embolisms occur when air enters the venous circulation, travels to the right heart, and lodges in the pulmonary circulation. Artery air embolism can occur as a result of an inadequate filtration of venous air embolism, so by, a, by the lung. So uh, therefore, you have um, air entering directly into the arterial system. So when we talk about um, air embolism, it should really be suspected when patients have a sudden respiratory distress um, or if they are experiencing a neurological event because these are the two presentations that you have. And I'm talking about patients who have um, a central venous catheter, patients that are getting TPN, right? Something that has a direct access to the veins or, um, whether they're peripheral or central. If a patient starts having respiratory distress, I want you guys to be thinking for your NCLEX exam, venous air embolism. And if they are having some symptoms of arterial embolism, then what we're gonna see is an acute change in a patient's mental status or neurological focal points, right? Um, sometimes it may even present as a loss of consciousness or coma, or coma. So those are the two, venous and arterial. Don't forget guys, if you need to take notes, do so because we are gonna challenge ourselves with NCLEX questions after this presentation. Moving right along. So what is happening? What causes this? This happens when there is a direct connectivity between a source of air, like a, like a line, an intravenous line, and the vasculature and also a pressure gradient favoring the entry of air into the circulation. And so that's when an air embolism can occur. And so causes of this can be um, surgery, 
Yeah. Eve, um, surgeries, obstetric, uh, cesarean deliveries, laparoscopic surgeries, any kind of surgery is going to have its own risk for a venous embolism. Um, what do we have here? Trauma. So yes, if a patient has some sort of um, damage or obstruction or um, insertion of anything, gun wound, knife wound, all these things, they can cause they can cause your patient to have air embolism as well. Vascular interventions can cause the patient to have um, an air embolism. So like I was talking about central venous catheter, pulmonary catheters, hemodialysis catheters, Hickman catheters. Those are all um, vascular interventions. Barotrauma of our patient. So if a patient is on a ventilator and uh, with a ventilator, remember, especially if they're getting uh, positive pressure ventilation, this puts the patient at risk for a barotrauma. And subsequently, by having that happen to the patient, they are more increased to have the venous emboli or the um, arterial emboli. Okay. What else we have here? Diving, diving as well. That's interesting because when you are a diver, when you are a diver, it's, it is possible that you getting um, oxygen at certain pressures underneath the sea. And I know I'm, Mark is way better than this than me because he actually does dive and is certified. But when you have oxygen being delivered to your body under certain pressures, like under the ocean, then that could increase your risk for getting a um, uh, air embolism, air embolism. Okay. So remember, usually when you think about air, it is collapsible. It's something that can fit whatever space it's in. However, our bodies are a very interesting um, machine, I guess. Um, and the fact that if air gets into the vessels, it, it cannot collapse. It won't collapse. It will maintain its shape. So if you have this thing traveling through the vessels, right, going through your vessels, it's an air bubble. And um, what it'll do is it will begin to push things in front of it. So it will begin to push your blood. It will begin to push. If you have like plaque on the veins and the air is going through there, it will push the plaque and it'll start moving and it'll be a train of just foreign particles and substances that should not be moving through the vessels. They'll begin to move. So this definitely is critical care nursing. Okay. Because approximately... 10, you only need approximately 10 to 20 milliliters of air before the patient becomes symptomatic. So between 10 to, 10 to 20 milliliters of air and your patient will start to have signs such as confusion, lightheadedness, anxiety, okay, unresponsiveness, cardiac arrest. You guys know this is huge for an air embolism. Um, and then there's a, there's a test that can be done. You guys don't have to know the details of the test, but it is the simplified acute physiology score. And that would be greater than 33. And this is going to indicate your patient's risk for um, 
cardiac arrest and as secondary cause of the air embolism. Increasing age, the older we get, uh, the presence of focal motor deficits for arterial air embolisms, acute kidney failure, prolonged mechanical ventilation for more than five days can put you at risk, or geriform air on brain imaging. Okay. All right. So how do we prevent air embolism? This is so important for the NCLEX exam, particularly for my RNs. Um, stopping the disruption of any closed catheter system. So maintaining, right? Maintaining all closed catheter systems, making sure all connections are how they're supposed to be. Um, if they're supposed to be open, make sure they're open. If they're supposed to be closed, though, make sure that they are clamped and closed. That is important. Using the lock lure systems, lock lure systems uh, help to do that. Um, and those are typically found, if you're not sure what a lock lure system is, you typically find them on all central line catheters. Does anybody know? Has anybody seen one, know, knows what it is? Okay. Um, Valsalva maneuver. Valsalva maneuver, it is important because if you are, if you're breathing in and out during um, line changes, blood can, um, air can tend to get in those lines. So the the Valsalva maneuver is a bearing down, like you're mm, bearing down, but you're not breathing. Or there's something else you could do. Does anybody else know what you could do? You could do Valsalva maneuver, or for NCLEX, they can say, "Have your patient hum," like hmm, because if you're humming, then you're not breathing in and out. You're just hmm, humming. So that's something else that you could do. Okay, let me go back. For mechanical lung inflations, um, mechanical lung inflations, making sure honestly that a ventilator dependent patient has a positive interthoracic pressure. Yeah. So that's basically having the, <clears throat> the ventilator take the breaths for the patient. That is considered a mechanical lung inflation. Sterile occlusive dressings. Sterile occlusive dressings are, um, they're useful um, in this situation, and then there's another situation where we talk about the occlusive dressing and how it is effective in preventing air from entering the, um, the um, vessel or the track that that catheter is inserted in. What is the other condition where we use a occlusive dressing in acute care? I'm looking at my VT workbook because I just, I'm waiting for the comments on the screen. There is somewhere else where we use occlusive dressings. And if you don't know, it is on page 102 in your RN book. Yes, for the chest tube patient. Remember with chest tubes, we also use an occlusive dressing because we don't want air getting into the space where that chest tube is. Good job. So you see how when you learn something in nursing, you can basically work on any floor, any floor, because these are principles that are going to apply. Uh, drip chamber filled to half or one third. It is important to um, ensure that the drip chambers are filled to at least one third to one half to ensure 
um, that's also all the IV connections are tight and there's not a lot of air. Basically, we want that tubing to be primed very well, very, very well. Now, these are the interventions if an air embolism is evident. So what we would want to do is clamp the tubing of the catheter, all right? If the air embolism is suspected, go ahead and clamp the tubing of the catheter or occlude the catheter hub because what's happening is it's allowing air to get into the vessels. Also, we want to turn the patient to the left side in the Trendelenburg position, Trendelenburg position, because this might allow the air uh, to rise up to the right ventricle wall and improve blood flow. So Trendelenburg position. All right. Um, Durant's remover maneuver is basically positioning the client's head down into the left side as well. Uh, attempting to aspirate the air. This is um, this has to be done carefully if done at all, but it is basically trying to remove the air directly from the venous line. So patients who have um, central venous access and it is suspected to be right in that right atrium, one more not a not a new nurse but a seasoned nurse may attempt to aspirate that air. Also, we have to give the patient oxygen via face mask and definitely notify the provider of the patient, okay? So those are nursing interventions for this. Okay, guys, we did a quick rundown of air embolisms. You guys know how they're caused, what are the differences, what are the client presentations, and now we got to go into some inquest questions about it. So here we go. First question is this. Question number one, an air embolism can be differentiated into several types. If a client is having altered mental status and loss of consciousness, the nurse identifies this as number one, arterial air embolism, two, pulmonary air embolism, three, venous air embolism, or four, superficial embolism. What say if you guys on tonight? If you have been studying with me for this Winning Wednesday, this is an easy question for you. Super easy. And I'm showing you guys right now why it's better to study the content first. Because when you study content first, questions are easy. Okay, so we're talking about the client having altered mental status. So we know, is this an arterial air embolism, pulmonary, venous, or superficial? Hey, everybody got it right. It is number one in arterial air embolism. If you did not get this right, you need to go back to the beginning of this class. Arterial air embolisms usually affect the brain, and so clients may present with an acute change in mental status and or focal neurological deficits. How many of you guys are one for one and ready to keep your winning streak to question number two, which is this. An air embolism is asymptomatic until blank milliliters of air has entered into the vascular system. Is it number one, two milliliters? Two, five milliliters? 
three, eight milliliters or four, 15 milliliters. I'm looking for the answer. I am looking for the answer. Shout out to the Remar nurse with this beautiful testimony. Hi guys, I passed my NCLEX exams. I use the quick facts for my contents. Glory be to God, I'm a proud Remar nurse. Thanks Regina for all you do. God bless you all. God bless everybody on this live right now. We are all trying to make it to where lifestyle with you Bella is. Nursing license in hand. Hey, God, I, I told you the answer to this. I said it. Did you catch it? We are talking about an air embolism. How much air before it becomes symptomatic? Well, that answer is 15 milliliters from our choices that we're given. Remember, it takes approximately 10 to 20 milliliters of air um, that must enter the venous system before the patient becomes symptomatic. So um, signs of an emergency may include confusion, lightheadedness, anxiety, and unresponsiveness. Pow! Did you get it? Ah, you caught it. You caught it. This is Winning Wednesday where during the middle of the week, you prioritize yourself and take some time out for your nursing license. Okay, I am here with this question. The nurse anticipates that the following action could cause an air embolism. The following actions could cause an air embolism. Number one, removing a pulmonary catheter. Two, priming an IV tubing prior to insertion. Uh -huh. Three, placing a sterile gauze over a catheter entrance or four, allowing client to hum during line changes. Oh, I bet you can get it down to two, but you better pick one. <laughs> you better pick one. Look it over again. I have another amazing testimony. I'm sharing it. I'm taking time to share it. Nurse Gray says, hey, Regina, I want to say with gratitude to you and Mark, I passed my NCLEX September 29th. I'm official nurse E-L-P-N. Those are beautiful letters proud Remar nurse, and I'm still here to study. Pow! I love that. Congratulations to you on tonight as well. Is there anyone? Is there anyone else? Is there any more testimonials? It's not Monday motivation. It's Wednesday, Wednesday, but we're still sharing testimonials. The correct answer, guys, is going to be number one, removing that pulmonary catheter. A lot of you got this one right. Because when you're taking out a catheter, air can enter the vascular system during that catheter insertion or removal. So as well as an unintentional catheter disconnection, in a short amount of time, a substantial volume of air can enter the vascular system, can enter into the vascular system. Hey, this topic is super important. You best uh, tag a friend, tag your buddy. Question number four is this, guys. And then you know what? I'm going to keep this study session going. I'm going to go inside the VT and I'm going to play one of my videos that's related to this. I think I'm going to play chest tubes tonight. So if you got your VT workbook and you're ready to take some notes, let's go. Let go. All right. Question number four says this. The nurse notices respiratory distress. O2 saturation at 87% and coughing in a client with TPN. 
the initial action the nurse will do is number one, provide oxygen supplementation. Two, shift position to the left Trendelenburg position. Three, clamp the catheter. Four, inform healthcare provider. Ah, this is a prioritization question and it's so good. It is so good. What is the correct answer here, guys? You got a patient, you suspect it may be an air embolism, but you don't really know. They're having some respiratory distress, so we may be thinking venous air embolism. What is the best thing for us to do? Number one, provide oxygen supplementation. Two, shift position to left Trendelenburg position. Three, clamp the catheter. Or four, inform the healthcare provider. What's it going to be, Remar nurses? What is the safe thing to do? What's the safe thing to do right now, guys? What? I see these, I see these comments on the screen and my eyes, my lion eyes are deceiving me right now that you guys don't have the answer right. I'm... What? Here's the choices. Okay, the correct answer, you guys, is number three. Remember? Remember it's number three? I see all these ones and twos and ones and twos. No, it's number three because, remember, patient got TPN. And so if air embolism is suspected, we got to clamp. We got to clamp that first. That's the first thing to do. Then we can put them into... Then if you want to, you can put them in Trendelenburg position, but we don't want to put them in Trendelenburg position. The TPN still going in, the air still getting in, and we moving them around. We don't want to put oxygen on them, and we still got the issue running. We want to stop the issue first, okay? That has to be done first. Catch that, catch that. All right, I'm moving on. Got to move on. Question number five is this. The nurse is caring for a client with a, with a peripheral IV. In order to prevent air embolism, the nurse ensures that, number one, the drip chamber is always one-third to one-half filled. Two, patency is checked by doing port flushes every eight hours. Three, IV clamps remain open when changing IV fluids, four, allow IV connections to be loose for easy access. All right, what sayeth you, what sayeth you on this night? We are talking about, we are talking about, how do we prevent an air embolism? What is the best thing for us to do? And I said it, I said it, I said it. It is going to be. Hey, a lot of you got this one right. I'm so happy you redeemed yourself. You redeemed yourself. And it is definitely, it is definitely number one, making sure that that drip chamber making sure that that drip chamber is 
one third to one half field. All right, and that prevents air from entering in. Okay, prevents air from entering in. I see some superstars tonight got five out of five. That is amazing. If you listened to the lecture beforehand, you definitely could have got all these questions right. That is the goal. I'm trying to train you guys to believe in yourself. You can do it. You can do it. Hey, how about we go inside the virtual trainer and let's see what we can get into for just a few short minutes. I'm going to take you right into the training center where all of my lectures are held. If you have the VT, you know how we do this. And let's go into the RN location. And on tonight, let's see here. I wanted to, okay, so in the virtual trainer, you guys know you have all these videos, all right? And they each have important subjects for this current, current, current um, NCLEX exam. So I would like to do, I hear, I hear, um, I would like to do chest tubes and vents tonight, all right? So if you have your workbook, is it possible for me to do that? Okay. Um, if you have your workbook, in the RN workbook, chest tubes and vent ventilator is on. If you want to take notes, help me. Okay. It starts on page 101. If you have the PN, because I have both. PN is on page 96, okay? So RN and PN, you can find this topic because both of you need to know this for your exam. This information both need to know for the NCLEX exam. Let me see if I can play this video. Thank you guys. You're putting the, the pages on the screen. Let's see. Welcome to your chest tubes overview. You know, chest tubes are seen no matter where you will work in nursing from surgical to geriatrics to ICU. Let's talk about what a chest tube is. A chest tube is a one-way drain that allows fluid or air to escape the pleural space. Remember, normal breathing works on negative pressure and negative pressure if I try to explain it, it's the idea that when humans inhale, it's a result of the diaphragm contracting and moving down while the rib muscles move out. So all of these things cause the lungs to expand. The pressure inside the lungs drop, which allows the air to come in. And that's why we call it negative pressure. Um, it's just the way the humans suck air in. Chest tubes are needed whenever the negative pressure in the pleural space is disrupted. Now, let's get into an emergency that would require a chest tube. What I want to look at is the tension pneumothorax. And you may have learned this in nursing school but we're gonna review it here. The tension pneumothorax is when air is in between the lung and chest wall. 
This may be caused by a trauma, a surgery, sometimes a fall. Anyways, what happens is there is outside air inside of the pleural space. And that air is coming in, but it's not able to get out. So for NCLEX, you do have to understand the tension pneumothorax, but also you have to be able to identify when a client is experiencing a tension pneumothorax. So let's go over this chart here. These are the classic signs of a tension pneumothorax. Trachea deviation. If you look at the x-ray on your page, you will see that this client has tracheal deviation. So write yes across from the box. It's a classic sign for you to know if a tension pneumothorax is present. Now, the blood pressure of this client, just looking at the x-ray, you tell me, would we expect the blood pressure to be up or down? We're gonna expect this blood pressure to be down. The patient will be in shock. So because the blood pressure is down, what will the heart rate do? The heart rate will go up, yes, to compensate. Now, lung expansion, it will be unequal, but on the affected side, do you think the lung expansion is going to be up or down? It's gonna be down. The lung expansion is absolutely going to be decreased. What about oxygenation for this patient? Will they have a healthy oxygenation? Will it be up or will it be down? It's going to be down, yes, again. Now, the jugular veins, will they be distended or will they be decreased? What do you think? <laughs> they're going to be up, yes. They're going to be distended jugular veins with the tension pneumothorax. So how do we treat this? How do we treat the tension pneumothorax? Because it is a medical emergency. The client needs treatment right away. The treatment of the tension pneumothorax is a needle decompression. Yes, a needle decompression into the second intercostal space. So now that you have that emergency out of the way, what typically happens is after the needle decompression, air will come out of the patient, maybe sometimes even fluid will come out of the patient after the needle decompression. But we cannot continue to do needle decompressions every several hours. We need something else to continue to draw the air and the fluid out of the client. And what that treatment is, is a chest tube. So you have to understand how the three chambers of the chest tube system work together. So we're going to move into our chest tube setup lecture right now. We're going to look at the three chambers. We have a collection chamber, a water seal chamber, and then the suction control chamber. Let's look at how to manage the collection chamber. The purpose of the collection chamber is to collect fluid, is to collect the fluid or the blood that comes out. Now, we want to notify the doctor if the drainage is two things, okay? First, we wanna notify the doctor if the drainage is bright red because bright red blood is new blood, it's fresh blood. It indicates that the client is actively bleeding. We also wanna notify the doctor if the blood or the drainage is greater than 100 milliliters per hour. What's the issue with a greater than 100 milliliters per hour 
blood or fluid return. It means that your patient again is bleeding out. So these are two things that nurses want to look out for. Now remember, the collection chamber is a way for us to monitor how much fluid is coming out of our client. So we never would want to empty it or dump it out. Let's move on to the next chamber, which is the water seal chamber. The water seal chamber is called the water seal chamber because it actually has water in it that you will be able to visibly see, about two centimeters of water. Now, the purpose is to allow air to exit from the pleural space during exhalation and prevent air to enter the pleural space during inhalation. So the question always in the water, should you see bubbling? Should you not see bubbling? Some resources will call it titling. Should you see titling? Should you not see titling? So continuous bubbling or titling is a bad sign. It means that there is an air leak. You do not wanna see that. What you wanna see is intermittent titling. That's a good sign. That means the water seal chamber is working effectively. Now let's look at the suction control chamber. The suction chamber determines how much suction is being applied to your patient. Now it's the doctor or the healthcare provider that orders that. We as nurses, we cannot alter it. We cannot change it but the suction control chamber also has water in it. So the question is, should there be bubbling or titling? Should there not be bubbling or titling? For the suction control chamber, it's just the opposite. Continuous bubbling is a great sign. It shows that the suction is on and it's working. Intermittent bubbling is a bad sign. It means that the suction is not working properly. So, Let's look at the care of a client with a chest tube. Number one, we need to assess the client for respiratory distress, breath sounds, and stable vital signs. The chest tube should be above or below the chest level. What do you think? The chest tube should be placed below the chest level, yes. Number three, do not milk or strip a chest tube without a doctor's order. Four, daily chest x-rays are needed to check for fluid removal. Five, clients will have an occlusive dressing at the insertion site. Six, never clamp a chest tube without a doctor's order. Now, here are some common NCLEX troubleshooting scenarios that you will be placed in. Let's talk about what you are going to do. So number one, if we notice that the water seal is broken, if we see that continuous bubbling, we're going to recreate a new water seal. The way we do that is we place, this is A, I want you to write this down, place the distal end of the tube in two centimeters of sterile water. That's it. And then the second scenario, if the client accidentally pulls his chest tube out, of course, we're going to stay calm as the nurse. We're gonna A, use a gloved hand, B, cover the opening with an occlusive dressing, and then C, tape the dressing on three sides only 
not four, just three, so that we can allow air to escape and that will prevent attention pneumothorax. Now, let me just go back and say something. When I'm saying an occlusive dressing, what's the difference between a regular sterile dressing and an occlusive dressing? What do you guys think? Well, the occlusive dressing blocks air from coming through the fibers. So an occlusive dressing will typically have petroleum jelly all over it. So when you open it up um, from the packaging, it will be all sticky because the dressing will actually be covered front and back with petroleum jelly. And that's what makes it occlusive. The third scenario that we have here is that the, the client complains of pain and they won't comply with any of the doctor's orders. If they're in pain and they won't walk, they won't do their incentive spirometry, what do we do? We medicate the client and then have them to cough and deep breathe, all right? So A, you medicate the client and then you have to teach them to cough and deep breathe to prevent atelectasis. Now, in a perfect NCLEX world, you will have at the bedside of a client with a chest tube, these three things always, always. Number one, you will have that occlusive dressing ready to go. Two, you will have sterile water. And three, you will have a chest tube clamp. So let's do some more critical thinking to just test what we've learned. And I want you to attempt to do these questions by yourself and then come back with me to go over them. Number one, what kind of lung sounds would the nurse expect to hear with a client who needs a chest tube? And this is a select all that apply. The options are number one, wheezes, two, crackles, three, strider, four, diminished, or five, plural friction rub. The correct answers are number two, crackles, which indicates an excessive amount of fluid with a chest tube would help. Four is diminished, and diminished lung sounds usually indicate that air or fluid is in or around the lungs. So chest tubes would also help this condition. Now, the wheezing, the strider, and the pleural friction rub are caused by things that a chest tube is not gonna correct. So let's go on to the next question. When caring for a client with a chest tube, what should the nurse do to evaluate the effectiveness of the chest tube? Choices are number one, empty the chest tube drainage every shift. Two, mark the chest tube drainage every shift. Three, clamp the chest tube when transferring the client. Four, add water to the water chamber when she notices it is low. The correct answer, mark that chest tube drainage after every shift. Three, what should be done once the fluid in the water cell chamber no longer fluctuates with inspiration or expiration? What's happening? Now, you don't see any movement in the water cell chamber. Normally, it's either continuously bubbling or intermittently bubbling, but now there is no movement. What we need to do is assess the client assess the chest tube, but assess the client because possibly the chest tube can be removed. If there's no more air exchange, then maybe there's no more air in that pleural space. The chest tube can be removed. Number four, 
after a client has his chest tube removed by the healthcare provider, which dressing should the nurse have ready to place over the incision site? So we're looking for a what here? An occlusive dressing, and it is going to be the Xeriform petroleum dressing should be at that insertion site. Before I close out this lecture, I want to just quickly look at ventilator alarms and the two that you need to know for your NCLEX exam. Now, there are two alarms that you need to know, and that is the high pressure alarm sound and the low pressure alarm sound when a client is on a ventilator. So let's start with the high pressure alarm sound. This goes off when there is a high amount of pressure required to get oxygen to your patient. So normally the ventilator has to put out more pressure if there is some sort of blockage. Uh, maybe the patient has mucus that needs to be suctioned or the patient is actually biting on the tubing. Those things will make the high pressure alarm sound. Now the low pressure alarm will sound when the pressure is just too low and the air is flowing freely. This is usually caused by a disconnection or an air leak. So be mindful of these two types of alarms. Now here is my Remar tip about ventilator alarms. If you don't know what to do, then disconnect your patient and manually resuscitate them with an ambu bag. So if the alarm is going off, the nurse is unable to figure it out, you need to assume your patient is not breathing during this time. Just disconnect them from the ventilator and manually resuscitate them, all right? So now you guys are ready to cover these types of questions for your NCLEX exam. One more thing, a really awesome student has sent me this help that I wanna share with you guys. It is the acronym HOLD. H-O-L-D, and that stands for high alarm obstruction, low alarm disconnection. I really love when you guys reach out to me in order to make this NCLEX review amazing. All right, you are ready to continue on to the next subject. Perfect, so if you guys have your VT workbooks, then you know the next section that we do cover inside of, um, inside of the course is the congestive heart failure, which is one of my favorite subjects to teach because it's super easy to learn. And you would just be filling out your workbooks, okay? You would just be filling out your workbooks. All right, everyone, if you want to pass NCLEX this year, you have to start now, like right now, today. We are in October. So if your goal is to get your license before or 2023 rolls in, if you don't want to carry this into next year, if you don't want to be uh, after the new year, at Valentine's Day, spring break, if you do not want to still be studying for NCLEX, get serious today, please, guys. Please, please, please. You can do it. You guys can absolutely make this goal a reality. Make this goal a reality. But you got to start now. You have to start now. Can't say it enough. You got to start now. So, if you want to get started, please text me directly to, uh, to text the word NCLEX to 855-696-0132. And um, I will be able to answer any questions that you might have as well. But also, 
just pick up the virtual trainer if you want to at remarnurse.com. Get your nursing license in about four weeks. All right. Get prepared in about four weeks. So um, is the workbook on the same website as the Quick Facts book? Yes. So if you go to remarnurse.com, you are able to you are able to uh, assess and grab your VT right there. And again, we are shipping out the books. Every virtual trainer comes with my two books, which is, of course, Quick Facts for NCLEX. Super proud of this book and the virtual trainer student workbook, as well as, again, you will get access to my, my online platform where you will be able to continue on. Even when I'm not there, you guys will still be able to continue on and do the rest of the lectures. All right. And again, this is a comprehensive NCLEX review. So you will get um, a ton of nursing content as well as being able to take your practice exams and your homework. All right. Um, and another thing that I want to show you guys, let me see if I can get to it. Because I think this is one of the most important things. If you have the virtual trainer, please go into your file vault. Yes, this is for RN and for PN. I have one for RN and for PN. If you go to your calendars and resources, Make sure that you are printing out your calendar, whether you're a registered nurse or a practical nurse, because your study calendar, your daily study calendar that I created for you is going to allow you to know what to study. OK, so every day you will have a picture of what to study. OK, and in our study calendar, we do have our rest days. And we do not study for longer than three hours a day. And I always give you Saturday and um, Saturday and Sunday off. All right. So, yes, this is your daily study calendar. And you will get one that you will print out for every week. It doesn't even matter. Even the final week, week six, some people get here. And they are excited about week six because you don't have as much to do, <laughs> but it is still um, about getting there. Can you get there? Can you do it in six weeks? All right, right? So this is the opportunity, you guys, for you to go ahead and get started today because the 2023 year, you don't know. You never know what's coming ahead in the new year. So I want you guys to be licensed nurses going into the new year instead of studying for this exam. Yeah. All right. And as always, if nobody told you this, you can, you will, and you must pass NCLEX. Let me show you how to do it. I can get you there in six weeks or less with a daily study calendar. Yes. All right. See you later. Bye-bye.